0: Today's brilliant guest is journalist and author Andy Bull, who has lived in London for the best part of 40 years. Author of two books about London, on today's podcast we chat about Secret Twickenham, Witten, Teddington and the Hamptons. Now I'm sure you will all have heard of the Cavern Club in Liverpool, where the Beatles made their name, but chances are you've never heard of the wonderful Eel Pie Island in Twickenham, which in the 60s was a favourite spot for the likes of the Rolling Stones, David Bowie and Rod Stewart to play. These parts of West London are home to many secrets and have many glorious stories to reveal. And Andy is the perfect host. Listen in as we dive into the Thames that was once full of salmon, eels and trout, take a trip around Henry VIII's Hampton Court Palace and wander around the film studios at Teddington and the home of English Rugby. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favorite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favorite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in Your own time. It's completely free, and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the home page and click on the red button where it says guests' favourite places in London. Click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening, best wishes, and keep safe. Steve. Right, well, I'm delighted to have on the podcast today uh, the author and journalist. Well, I don't know if you still call you a
1: journalist, a former journalist, maybe, uh, Andy Bull.
0: How are you
1: doing, Andy? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, the journalism is sort of a little bit in the past these days, what with age and the fact that uh, newspapers aren't the places of, um, of employment that they were. So I've basically been self-employed for quite a long time now, most of this century. Um, and I've really got more and more into into books and and writing, so more author than journalist these days.
0: I don't believe it when you say age. You you look a young man still to me. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you your age. That that would be impertinent. Sixty four, Steve. I'm I'm proud of it. You seriously, sixty four? I am. Yes. You certainly you said don't look it.
1: <laughs> You should you should have your feet up relaxing then surely. Just yeah, no, yeah. that would get really tedious though, wouldn't it? The, the great thing is, I find with um, age and having a little bit of financial freedom is you can do what you always wanted to do. and I always loved writing, but I found that I could make more money as an editor and you know people started promoting me. So you end up not being able to do any writing and getting other people to do the writing for you. and feeling really frustrated because you felt you should have done it and could absolutely definitely have done it better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So tell us before we go into, um, obviously, we, uh, one of the purposes of getting you on the podcast is to talk about your recently published book, part of the Secret series by uh, Ambley Publishers called The Secret, Twickenham, Witten, Teddington and the Hamptons. Bit of a mouthful, but yeah. Bit, a bit of a mouthful, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that beautiful part of West London shortly. Yeah. Before we come on to the book, how did you get into, uh, because you were a journalist yeah. prior mm-hmm. to your. Yeah, yeah. How did you get into journalism? What's your, what's your background, first of all?
1: So I did an English degree, and um, I, naturally, being an arrogant young man, didn't bother to apply for any jobs, and I thought, you know, I'll probably go into publishing or something. And one day, my dad said, well, have you thought about local newspapers? And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, local newspapers, you know, absolutely beneath me. Anyway, when I couldn't think of anything better to do, I started applying, and I got a job as a graduate trainee on a local newspaper. It was a big group, but they owned a lot of papers around the country. And I was on the Hastings Observer, where in those days you used to do a formal apprenticeship. So I basically, for two and a half years, um, learnt the ropes and then moved on from there, really. Um, it was a sort of classic newspaper background that I think has probably died out or is dying out these days because local papers are struggling and um, and, and going to the wall. But you basically used to start on a weekly paper, go on to a daily paper then start doing shifts on Fleet Street. So, for instance, I would do shifts on anything from, well, the Sun, the Mail, the Express, and you'd hope that a, a job would come up. And the first job that came up was on the Daily Mail, and it was something called a night stone sub, which was for features, which basically meant you worked from 8pm to 5am with the printers, looking at the, this was all what they used to call hot metal, I don't know if that phrase means anything to you, but it was basically, everything was set in type. It was, although Mm. we could easily have been doing computer setting, um, the unions were so strong in Fleet Street in those days that they managed to um, hold the tide back for, Twenty years or so, so we were still doing this hot metal. So I basically spent my nights with a lot of printers, begging them please to correct errors that I'd spotted and um, and try not to touch anything because if you did, they would black the pages. But um, from there, it got a bit better. So I went on. I worked on a newspaper called the Independent, which launched in 1986, um, and that was quite interesting because at the time, it was three journalists who broke away from the Telegraph, decided they would start their own newspaper, and they did. And it coincided with the time when Rupert Murdoch had taken the Times into Fortress Wapping, and which, again, some Londoners may recall, quite bloody days. And about 40 very good people from the Times thought, sod this for a game of soldiers, I'm leaving. So they all came over to the Independent. And all of a sudden, we were quite a fashionable enterprise. And as I said, that was in 86. And then from there, I sort of worked on various other newspapers, including the Times, Where I was editing the online section um, at the time, around about the turn of the century, when um, the internet was really beginning to take off, and we were all struggling to work out what to do with it. But then, yeah, went freelance in about two thousand and three, two thousand and four, and as I say, been an author pretty much ever since.
0: So, what's the role of an editor? I mean, as as such, where you do you have editorial right to sort of to to determine what is actually published and what is not? Do Do you? yeah, edit out sections which you don't like i mean what, what is what is your role what was your role at
1: the end well, well principally the editor comes up with the ideas so you'll have a conference if you're on a daily paper you'll have a morning conference and the editor will say go around the desk to all the people in the different departments okay what have you got and obviously to a large extent the stories are happening news is happening so you have to essentially cover it I'm um, on a paper like The Independent, I was working um initially on the kind of comment pages. They used to call them the op-ed pages, opposite editorial. So you'd need three or four substantial pieces of comment each day, which were relevant to the day's big issues. So it was up to your now, and principally your understanding of the reader and what they were interested in, in the subjects that you felt you'd be covering. And if you got them wrong, the editor would tell you fairly rapidly, and, and so would the readers. But um, fortunately, the great thing about The Independent was it was quite a young team and quite a young readership. So you could pretty much tell that if you were interested in something, your your audience would be as well, because you essentially were the audience. And then it would be a question of, you know, if you needed a senior politician or a famous author or some other public figure to write, you'd hit the phone to them, try and persuade them, and then try and persuade them they actually needed to do it by three o'clock that afternoon, which is probably about three or four hours and then get it in the paper. So it was a kind of constant um, scramble to react to news and get um, relevant comments on it. Mm.
0: So I would imagine the the changes that you've seen over the last, I don't know, decade from the traditional newspapers to online media is is just radically changed, hasn't it? The way we consume media
1: today yeah, media well, also yeah. today with, with social media as well well Trump yeah fake news i mean that's right steve now most i'm um, probably anyone just about any industry could tell you a story about how the internet has um radically altered it and of course yeah newspapers fundamentally i mean Well, one of the key things was people wanted to go online and read online. Um, We were, of course, all delighted to be able to put things online. We had no lag, no time lag. We could instantly react, which is fantastic. But in the early days, we couldn't work out how to get people to pay for it. Um, And now a few papers like the Times have managed to do it, and papers are beginning to get subscription, online subscription. The New York Times is a real leader around the world. They are doing phenomenally well and beginning to get, I believe, somewhere close to the kind of revenue they would have had for print. But it's still a huge struggle. And the other great big thing is that all the advertising has gone to Facebook and Twitter. And now that's why you're seeing local papers collapsing. They don't have any classified ads anymore. They don't have you know, display ads. They don't have the revenue stream that used to basically underpin the production and and make um, financial sense of the enterprise. And it's looking very doubtful. I in my opinion, that um you'll ever have local newspapers again the way you did. Which is a shame. It's um a concern because while, you know, naturally journalists don't have the greatest reputations around the place, I think what local papers did at the very best of times was they held to account. We went to every council meeting, every committee meeting, we went to every court case. Everything that happened went in the paper. And once that doesn't happen, once there isn't a reporter sitting in a court, once there isn't a reporter sitting in a council meeting, a committee meeting, that role of holding um, power to account has disappeared, and um, you know I think that's that's a worrying, uh, worrying trend. I'm not saying we were angels by any means, but um, I don't see any real alternative, and I think there's there's a big gap there that um, is um, to our detriment.
0: I suppose the alternative is uh, interested parties turning up at these meetings and posting out their tweets and social media posts and
1: blogs yeah and and and, you know the kind of what you might call or i don't know if it's still called it but um uh citizen journalism it has been a great big trend and you see a lot of things i mean a lot of stories now are covered because people are there and everyone's got a camera in their phone and they turn it on but there can be problems there because particularly as we're noticing in this days of um you know um fake news and um all kinds of allegations and um assertions that the truth actually isn't the truth and that my truth is as good as your truth. It's having trusted sources of information. And it can be very hard to know whether you can trust the source of information. And we're seeing that, you know, on the, on the world stage with Russian interference, with the kind of things that Donald Trump will say about truth and what is truth, what isn't truth.
0: So much so that the BBC now have their own fact checker journalistic department, don't they? Yeah. to verify the Things that are put out there
1: absolutely and i mean you know it gets to getting to the truth of something to get into a situation where you can say right this is actually what happened can be really difficult i mean this whole news business is not easy it's not easy it's very easy to get it wrong and um you know, and these days it's very apparent when, when you do get it wrong. But you're right, the fact-checkers, you know, the people the, the, the people who will look at the figures so that the government gives us figures every day about COVID and rises falls, and all the rest of it. And it's fantastic to have somebody who really understands statistics uh, saying, well, hang about, you know, that may be true, but let's take this in this context and let's, let, you know, let's, let's see the wider picture and, and open it up a bit. Yeah.
0: Well, what is true is the fact that you've written this wonderful book, <laughs> which we'll repeat is "Secrets uh, secret in the secret series, uh, Twicken and Witten, Teddington
1: and the Hamptons. So you're a West London lad. Whereabouts do you live? Well, I, I live waiting. in Ealing. I've lived in Ealing since 1983, I think it is. I actually was actually brought up in Kent in the Medway Towns. But, you know, I mentioned that one of the things you wanted to do as you were a journalist was do shifts on Fleet Street and of course it, it helped if you were if you were you were in town and you didn't have to drive half the half the night to get home. So coming to London made sense and um my wife was uh, on a local paper in West London and she'd had a flat in Ealing. And you know, so I knew Ealing a bit and um like a lot of people do, you find a part of London that seems to work and um and you settle in it, which we did and you think, well, actually, there are some parks, the schools aren't bad, so you have a family, you, you stay. And um, yeah, so I've been here ever since, and I, I love London. I think it's a, it's a fantastic city. I think the wonderful thing about London is anyone could be a Londoner, wherever you're from, whatever your background, you know, if you want to understand the values of London and respect London, you're welcome. I think that's fantastic.
0: Now, I couldn't agree with you more, which is why. Ultimately, I uh, created your London Legacy. I mean, such a diverse list of uh, characters and personalities who've uh, taken part in this uh, show. It's it's just amazing. Now, looking at the – first of all, why did you choose to write a book on this particular part of London? I mean, having looked at the book, it actually embraces an area which is relatively small in terms of its geography. I think it's five miles from – five and a half miles or something from from top, from the St. Margaret's part of – london down to hampton Hampton yeah if you want to go that route it's not a it's not a big area yet it embraces such a huge and diverse historical aspect and also was so important to the growth of london as a capital city as well
1: well absolutely i mean um i'd become interested in the area simply from you know like knowing it traveling around it working in little bits of it or um you know going walking along the thames that kind of thing but the great thing about Amberley is they, they have this secret series which they've been running for some years and it's it's phenomenally successful and they essentially take areas which are small areas like this, and uh it's really up to the, the, the author. But you basically pick about eight subjects and you look at them in you know reasonable detail. The thing about this small area is as you say, there is so much in it. I mean it's got uh, it's got the Thames, which is, you know, the absolute, you know, main archery of London. It's got Hampton Court. It's got great big um, mansions down the river. It's got all kinds of aspects. I mean, you know, the, the there were there are all sorts of things that I thought, well, I, I can make I can make this work because uh, I'll focus on the river. And so, for instance, you've got you know the fact that the river was was the way that um, produce was taken to London's food market in Covent Garden, and the fact that all around, all through that area, you know, Hampton, Witten, Twickenham. Teddington, were market gardens, massive, massive market gardens, produce taken down the river to Covent Garden. The boats came back full of uh, horse manure that they cleared off the streets, which was put on the land. That felt like a nice thing. The river and fishing, the river and boats, that all interested me. Aspects, you know, like Pie Island, where um, there was this remarkable um, rock and roll club in the early to mid-60s, which was like uh, an equivalent to the cavern. You know, the fact that the, the river was, once people started to get free time, they started to, you know, spend their leisure hours on the river. So you get things like the kind of real life versions of three men in a boat taking place. Mm. So I thought with all that, there's, there's a lot to be looking at. And frankly, when you get down to it, it's what, it's what you leave out that's the real pain because there's so much more you want, you want to say.
0: So how did you go about de- determining or how did you go about doing your research first of all because as you say it is a huge amount of history that you can you can delve into both both going back to you know medieval times even before then yeah uh, and more contemporary when you're just looking at the birth potentially the birth of rock and roll if you like on the high yeah, huh? island yeah yeah uh, and the d-day and Normandy landings as well because I didn't even appreciate you know the significance of the
1: boat builders and Well, I mean, I suppose, first of all, I started, you know, reading around the subjects. I mean, the great thing is there are two brilliant sources of of information, local information. That's um, the kind of local history groups who very often have published a lot of interesting pamphlets, leaflets, small books, which are available in the better local bookshops. Also, these days, of course, they a lot of those places, like the little museums in Twickenham and Teddington and so on and Richmond Library have got a lot of stuff online. Um, so you've got a lot of sources where you can, you can start to read. Um, and then it was a question of sort of picking out themes, I suppose, trying to pick my eight themes. And, you know, it came down to the things that I thought were most interesting. I mean, the, the secret in the book, I mean, there's a sort of slight caveat in that, okay, it, it's secret in that it's lesser known things. It's got to be interesting, and there are quite a lot of secrets that are very interesting. So, what I what I aim to do was pick out areas uh lesser known things, things which even people who've lived in the area, you know, all their lives might not know about, or aspects of those things that they might they might not know about.
0: Well, I'm betting a lot of people listening to this, and we have listeners right around the world. I'm betting a lot of people aren't aware that rock and roll could be traced back to a little little. Bit of land in the middle of the (laughs) the Thames called Eel Pie Island. So tell us a little bit about that and all the famous people who weren't famous at the time, rock stars, who made their name there back in the 60s.
1: Sure. Well, absolutely. I mean, look, we've all heard of the Cavern, all we know about Liverpool Sound, Eel Pie Island, little island just off Twickenham, where there was a broken down old hotel. We're talking about the late 50s now. And the it essentially grew into a club where which was one of three clubs in west london the other one was there was one in ealing um the ealing blues club and there was also the crawdaddy club which was in the station hotel in richmond and they became kind of focuses for what was emerging at the time in the particularly in the early sixty in the early 60s which was essentially rhythm and blues rock and roll and they were places where bands could get to play and often they went as um as um, punters just to hear the bands and they started to you know develop and the band swapped us on so to, to mention a few names so you've got this little place this old rundown hotel on, on ilpie island where the rolling stones had um, a residency every wednesday night where rod stewart um, used to go along as a punter saw the stones he says uh, yeah the stones they're all sitting there on stools wearing roll neck pullovers singing blues songs <laughs> and, and he that thought like oh, than yeah. <laughs> Pushy <or> Pushy. <laughs> yeah a little bit and um so rod thought well you know i can get a group of people around me on the beach when i pick up an acoustic guitar so i think i, I could have a go and um he had a girlfriend who was mate he got there because he's a girlfriend of mate with um chrissy shrimpton he was going out with chrissy shrimpton's sister and at the time chrissy shrimpton was uh, mick jagger's girlfriend and Rod's girlfriend said, oh, come and watch this band. They're really good. So, no, all right. Anyway, he started going back, and um, he's thinking, you know, I really would like to, to be a star. And one night, he's, um, he's going home, and he's on, um, he's on Twickenham Railway Station playing his harmonica, and he's playing Smokestack Lightning on his harmonica. And this very tall man strolls up, who was called Long John Baldry, who was at the time quite a famous blues um, performer, and who was performing? Rod had just seen him performing. And uh, Long John Baldry heard him, heard him um, playing and uh, got talking to him on the, on the train going back into Central London and I thought, said to him, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty good. Do you want to come and join us? And a couple of weeks later, Long John Baldry gets up on the stage at the Yule Pie Hotel and says, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to a young man with a fine blues voice, Rodney or Roderick Stewart. And um, the rest is history. And they're all. And
0: an outrageous haircut as well. Yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, at the time, he, well, he, he had a, a. Yeah, yeah, he didn't have the spiky hair at the time, I don't think. But yeah. But you got a lot of other, other people there, you know, who were there. There was so John Mayall's blues, blues band used to play there, and they had um, Eric Clapton. David Bowie played there when he was Davy Jones with the Manish Boys. Jimmy Page. All sorts of people got their breaks at that club. It's it's just a wonderful
0: story, and I, I love the fact that the only way to get onto the island was on this little ferry, which you had to pull across. And I it, think on in
1: rowing. the early days there was a rowing boat, and they had to go. So they're saying that you know we had a hell of a job getting uh, getting a and organ into a rowing boat and taking it across the island. Later there was a bridge that was built. Steve, can I tell you about um, the other aspect of this this story that I think people don't even even if they know about? The road, they know about? Well, so and I I didn't know this, and that's why I say like the book is called secret. So okay, even if people say yeah, I did know about Your Pie Island, and a lot of people went to it if they're of a certain, certain um, maturity and vintage. Probably don't but, remember it much, <laughs> Maybe <laughs> not. No, like the 60s, <laughs> if you were there. But the music was a kind of an accident because there was a bloke called Arthur Chisnell who was in his 20s, and he was working in a junk shop in Kingston called Snapper's Choice. And Arthur was a kind of frustrated sociologist, and he was interested in um, youth subculture. And in this funny old junk shop. These kind of trendy young things used to come in. This is say, this is about the late fifties. And they were buying up old trad jazz records. And he thought, This is odd, you know, this is very unfashionable. So he got chatting to them and um saying to them, you know, so what do you do? Where do you hang out? And they were saying, Well, there's nowhere to hang out really. We don't we don't have a place. And the, the bloke that ran, um, Snapper's Choice, um, also happened to own most of your Pie Island. And on it, he had this old hotel, which he didn't know what to do with. He tried to get planning permission to turn it into, um, a casino, got refused. So initially, Arthur said to him, could I start a chaz, a trad jazz, uh, club there? And he did. And it was reasonably successful. It had people like Kenny Ball and his Jasmine there. But when it got to the early 60s, that was not, no longer appealing to young people. So he started to hire these, um, these bands, the ones that we've just been talking about. He didn't particularly like this music, but he had an ulterior motive. And, w- and that was that he was very concerned about young people who could potentially go off the rails, yeah. you know, whether it's drugs, crime, just getting with the wrong crowd. So he wanted to start this club and he had quite a lot of opposition from the police and local people. So he, he talked to the police and they worked out a way of doing it so that you would have to have membership. And so you got like a little passport. It was a little passport to Eel Pyland, it was called. And the whole idea was he wanted to attract kids there who were potentially going to get into trouble elsewhere and ensure that they were safe on the island and in the club. So this was done. He had a kind of whole range of people who um, would look out for those who are coming on so say a young girl comes on the island she's thinking i'm gonna have drugs for the first time in my life i'm gonna you know get off with someone he would um spot that person he'd know who they were because they got the passport he got their name and address when what he considered a a vulnerable person would come onto the island he would kind of um nod to one of the kind of people who were his very unobtrusive um um professional assistants it might be a a off duty policeman it might be a vicar it might be a social worker And they would keep an eye on that person and make sure that they didn't get into serious harm. They'd also, if they saw people who were kind of at a loose end, they'd introduce them to other people. They'd start getting them into groups, getting friends, um, uh, just making sure that they were basically having a good time. They they thought that they were being real rebels in going there. You know, if they'd known he was doing this, they would have said, forget it. I'm not going to go somewhere which my mum wouldn't approve of. I'll go somewhere else. So it was, a, it was a really smart thing. So it was a kind of, it was a forerunner to kind of outreach. And um, it's been written up, all kinds of, you know, academic studies have been made of Arthur uh, Chisnell and what he did. Um, but as I say, I, I hadn't heard that story. And I only found it actually largely through wading through in the British Library, through theses um, and reading about, uh, reading about him and, and what he'd done. So, you know, as I say, I think there's, there's the two aspects there. You've got this amazing story of the, you know, the, the, the cavern of the South, but you've also got this bloke that I'd certainly never heard of who's got this really smart idea and is doing something absolutely unique and original.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful story because that is exactly the sort of person you want to highlight on this, uh, on this podcast, Your, yourself as well. But obviously, yeah, these little nuggets, these, these little golden nuggets, these perfect stories of people who are doing amazing things who was he
1: awarded an MBE or something for his services at some stage? He did get an MBE. Yeah, he was. He was certainly. Uh, he, he was, you know, called in to advise government and so on. You know, yeah, no, that's amazing. Yeah,
0: yeah, and unfortunately, the island fell. Uh, you know, after its heyday, it fell into disrepair, and I think there was a fire in the hotel. And the place went <laughs> yeah. down.
1: That's right. after Arthur, Arthur's club sort of failed in about sixty-seven, and there are issues. I mean, reading between the lines, I think that that kind of understanding he had between the authorities broke down and he got refused a license um, because he was accused of having dancing there which well it did have a a sprung dance floor that could could take 800 people so they were kind of likely to dance in it anyway that that fell out then it got squatted for a while There, there was an attempt to revive it in the kind of in the kind of um sort of latter days of um psychedelic rock so bands like America um, Broughton band and so on played there but then it got taken over by it became a squat and um it got pretty seedy and dangerous and yeah as you say uh it got, it got burnt down and, um, it was subsequently demolished. Now, if you go to Eelpie Island these days, it's, um, you go across a bridge and there's a little walkway and it's now, it's a lovely place. If, if anyone's interested and they haven't been, they go for Isn't a it stroll. an old colony now,
0: which is open to the public a couple of times a year?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, strictly, I suppose I should say the island is, is, is private in that it's just full of like a lot of little, um, uh, wooden cabins, but about twice it's many, many artists live there. And about twice a year, they will, they will do an open day and you can, you can find out when it is. And they, God knows about where they're going to be able to do it this year, but they usually do one sort of in the approach to Christmas. Yeah, so it's a place, it's kind of a bohemian bohemian place still.
0: Well, uh, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful story, but let, let's sort of jump in our time machine now and go, go back a couple of centuries. Tell us about your research that you did into Hampton Court and, and Bushy Park. A lot of people will think of Hampton Court uh, and the palace there, and associate it with Henry VIII, of course. And think of the maze there. Uh, you've got a great secret there about how to get out of the maze. <laughs> Maybe you can touch on that if you want to give a big secret away. Because I, <laughs> I, can, can, I, can, to, I can do uh, that one. And
1: yeah, and that's, um, I mean, it is famously meant to be very difficult to get out of. But the trick is that if you go and you keep, you keep your, um, the, the hedge on your right to your right shoulder, and you never let go across to uh, a hedge on your left. That will take you all the way into the middle, and then you turn around, it will take you all the way out again. It will take you into lots of dead ends, but you will never make a mistake.
0: Fantastic. Well, I don't know if it's open at the moment, but next next time it's open and we're we're out of lockdown, get yourself a lockdown to Court Palace. So tell us about the fish farming then and the the market gardens, because that obviously was very important from feeding london and londoners and the, and the, and the rapid expansion of london as, as a capital city so tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah well absolutely so the market garden side of things you had essentially a very large area i mean uh if you take about the this area that, that the book covers twickenham teddington down to the hamptons in the 18th 19th centuries 40 percent of that land was market gardens um and uh it was it was employing probably about 15,000 people so this was a massive enterprise um and it, it it was essentially feeding london london was fed from that area and for a long time it was just small you know little market gardeners just you know one man one man and a and a hoe kind of thing but gradually it started to develop so there was a, there was a family called the pooparts who were they, they believe, they're not absolutely sure, but they think they had a, a French hu- Huguenot um, ancestor who came in over in the 18th century um, and started market gardening, I mean, originally quite close to central London because I think, you know, basically, um, if you go back far enough, when you just had the cities of London and the city of Westminster, when you got outside those walls, it was countryside, it was market gardens. But as London grew, the market gardens got pushed further and further upriver. So the Pouparts, um were amongst those. Initially, a small area, they had, um, had a, 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 some land at Twickenham. But they were very good at selling their produce. And other local market gardeners around the area started saying, can you sell on our behalf? So the Puparts became really quite big entrepreneurs. They, they moved um, their headquarters to um, uh, Smithfield Market, And they started not just taking in produce from the Upper Thames area, they started importing things from all around the world. So they would be introducing exotic fruits, you know, pineapples, green peppers, all the kind of things that, you know, we weren't traditionally used to in London, they started to import. And meanwhile, out around this Twickenham, Teleton area, they were quite a big family and they all had their kind of little enterprises. And one of the guys, he was in charge of their fruit sales and they had big orchards out here. And in that and also in the other fruit that he was selling, he was finding that there was an awful lot of damaged fruit that they couldn't flog. And he thought, what can you make with damaged fruit? You can make jam. So he started making jam in his kitchen table. He had, um, he had a, he had a house out, um, in Hampton or near Hampton. And he found his jams were quite successful. And he started to present them at the Royal Horticultural Shows. And he he put, put up 400 different types of jam, apparently. Got these big prizes, gold awards, and so on. So he opened a factory. So there was a, a great big Pooparts jam factory in Twickenham, which was selling jam all around the world. And you see, I, in my researches, I found adverts in American newspapers and so on. It was a massive great place. It actually closed in the nineteen seventies um, and got knocked down, and they've now they've now put now built built houses there. But they had a factory at one point, which was um, uh, employing three hundred people and serving jam to basically the whole the whole world. Uh, and are they still going, or is there any element? They... Yeah, they are. The Poupart family are still involved in a company which is no longer in this area, but it's still doing business as an international um, sourcer and importer of fruit. Fabulous.
0: Also quite remarkable, and a little-known secret which you have um, brought <laughs> oh, to light.
1: One, one thing, Steve, they also, amongst the, the very areas of land that they had, was um, they had the land where um, Twickenham Rugby Stadium is. Which is often called the um, the Cabbage Patch, and it's called the Cabbage Patch for a reason because the poop pops are growing cabbages on. Where um, the mighty England play nowadays. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fish farming is quite interesting as well, Steve. I don't know if you would like to uh, talk. Yeah, no, very it like much. That. So. Once upon a time, the, the, the waters of the Thames would have been a lot
0: cleaner than they they became. I know they're a little bit cleaner than they you know today than they were recently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you to go back to the fifteenth sixteenth centuries, it was an amazing. Salmon River. I mean, it was famed for the, for the brilliant salmon. People were catching all kinds of fish there. It was absolutely a brilliant, brilliant river. But again, another one of the side effects of um, London expanding and the population growing, I think it went from 1 million to 9 million during the, during the 19th century. Forgive me if those figures aren't right, but it was a massive increase. So not only did you have the, the need for food and and, and the, the areas that we've touched on, you also had the fact that the river was starting to get incredibly polluted. A lot of water was being taken out of the river because people needed the water, but there were also sewage was being pumped into it, and also you got power stations, coal power stations upriver which were putting a lot of effluent into it. So by the sort of middle of the nineteenth century, the river was pretty much dead. And there was a guy called Francis Francis, who was a keen angler. And he had moved to a house which is on the Crane River, which is a small river that runs into the Thames in the area that the book covers. And um, he was very disturbed that um, it being such an amazing river for salmon, there were no longer any salmon in it. And he'd heard about this um, this new science of fish farming. Now, no one was doing fish farming. It was a theory that you could you could farm fish, you could take the fry and, you know, spawn them and so on and, and, and get the small fish, bring them up, release them. But no one had actually tried to do it. So he got together with Thames Conservancy and he created a fish farm, basically more by luck than judgment. A fish farm, one in, on the Crane River at the end of the river at the end of his garden and another one at Hampton on the Thames. And they started to breed fish. Within about, he was an absolute pioneer of this. And within about five years, they were managing to release 200,000 small fish into the river every year. Brown trout, particularly a lot of them. And this was fantastic upriver. It meant that the river was alive up at this end. Down in the center of London, Still not great. As you, as you mentioned, it was really only until you know, recent decades, certainly within living memory, that the river started to get cleaned up here. But it was upriver, one guy and this idea about fish farming, that actually meant that the river was saved and that it became um, a place where, where, where fish could, could, be, um, could breed and could, could succeed. And he, he exported this technology all around the world, all to Australia, New Zealand, and so on.
0: Oh, that's remarkable. And you've got some great pictures in the book as well of his uh, Francis Francis Fish Hatchery. Yeah, that's
1: right. One, one of the lovely things that when, you, when you're doing this research is you find there were these sort of illustrated newspapers, you know, the London Illustrated News and so on in, in the 19th century. And they would do these massively detailed, very large, almost like a whole page, line drawing of some big event or, or so on. And you see there there's a picture it's a bit hard just doing with audio but it's essentially um uh, in a great big shed it's a whole load of things it's almost like um um, um simulating a, a, a salmon river you know where the salmon are dropping down from level to level to level so you've got this process where i believe they will put the frying at the top and as they bred they would get bigger and they would flop down and flop down and flop down until they could release them in the river
0: well it's a remarkable book it's, it's- it has to be a remarkable book because it's covering a remarkable area and part of London. And there's so many, as you say, you've broken it down into sort of eight distinct uh, chapters and themes from, the, we've discussed some of them, the Market Garden, uh, Hampton Court, some of the grand houses, some of the famous people. it Alexander Pope, I think, um, one of the great, the famous poets who lived in the area That's as well. That's right, yes. Yeah. Um, Ilpie Island, Twickenham. We haven't even touched on the film studios or... There's a section on weapons of war, which we, you know, is another whole yeah. section which is well worth discussing. But I'm mindful of your your time uh, this evening. So, if people want to find out a bit more about you or the book, how do they get in touch with you and how do they get hold of a copy of the book?
1: Yeah, so the book's available. Probably the easiest way these days is through Amazon, or from the publisher. Amberley has a website, which is um, which is which is pretty easy to do. Um, I've got um, my own website, andybull.co.uk. And I'm also on twitter uh, on Twitter and Facebook. I tend to do quite a lot on on Facebook, particularly these days. I find you get an amazing engagement with people who are interested in the in the stuff you're writing about and have also got amazing things to tell you that you wish you'd known about when you actually published the book but uh, but there you go you live and learn
0: that's great, and also I understand you've got another book out now just out today i
1: think yeah out out today actually yeah i mean it's a bit it's a bit it's a funny time for everyone these days particularly in publishing where books have been held up for months and months and months so um so they've you know a bit like london buses two books have come along at once so yeah the book is pilgrim pathways which the the idea i had here i mean i i thought of this idea before lockdown but lockdown and and the kind of restrictions that we've got now made it even more relevant My idea was I love the idea of pilgrimage, but I I knew that pilgrimage routes are hundreds of miles long, and I didn't think I was going to get over to Compostela or the Via Francigena through France and Italy. And I knew that there were a lot of um, pilgrim paths in the UK, but they were, again, a couple of hundred miles long. And I thought, well, what about trying to do pilgrimages that you can do in a weekend or, indeed, as day walks? So I started looking around the country, and I came up with 20. And they're kind of edited highlights of longer routes. But in doing this, and in one, the one area that I found that's re- particularly relevant to London is I mean, no one thinks about pilgrimages in London. So when I was looking at this idea of a pilgrimage, I wanted to get a route around London which would encompass some very interesting different things. And one thing I discovered was there's a saint called Saint Botov, who, um who is the patron saint of travelers, who has got or had four churches named in his honour around the walls of the old city of London. And they run from Bishop's Gates um, round to Old Gates, and there's one that's quite close to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. So I thought, well, that's an interesting thing, to try and follow those those routes. And I wanted a starting point, and so I thought, well, Westminster Abbey would be an interesting starting point. And um, that's got the shrine there to St. Edward the Confessor, and of course, as anyone who's been into uh, Westminster Abbey, Abbey knows, all kinds of saints and famous people and so on. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll walk from there. And I devised a route walking down the Thames from there to Southwark, uh, walking down the Thames to Southwark. And that is the point where pilgrims on, who uh, Chaucer wrote about, going to Canterbury, that's where they would leave London. They would go to the Tabard, a pub near Southwark Cathedral, and that's where, they, they, where they'd all gather and they would go down to Canterbury. Now, um, the Tabard is, is no longer there, but there's a very similar inn there called the George, which you can still go in. It's actually run by the, the National Trust, um, and it's a galleried inn, almost identical and in a very similar place to, um, to the one where um, Chaucer wrote about. So now you're sort of getting an interesting theme. You're beginning to pick up, pick up some things. From there, I went across the river, went to the Tower of London, where now, I mean, I think we all know about the Tower of London, jewels, all the rest of it. But there's also the aspects of the, the martyrs who were killed there. And at the, in the, in the centuries after Henry, up until the sort of middle of the 19th century when Catholicism was outlawed, there were people who were there because they were Catholic. And there's a tower called the Salt Tower, where they, um, the, the 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 things that they scratch in the walls are still there. And we've also got all kinds of people like Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell were um, uh, were, were martyred there, all sorts of other people. So you get a very different um, aspect, a different story about the Tower of London if you go there sort of as a pilgrim. And then I went through St. Paul's. And then followed the route from Smithfield. So there used to be where the Old Bailey is now. It used to be um, Newgate Jail. And if you were condemned to death, you might be a martyr, more likely you're a common criminal. You'll be taken from there to Tyburn, which is just near Marble Arch. That was where, what they used to call it, the Tyburn Tree. That was where um, you would be hung, drawn, quartered, and all kinds of horrible things, don't you? So you got that route as well. So, but when you go on that, they used to have, have you heard that phrase, falling off the wagon, Steve? Yeah. So the, the people who were on their last journey to death were allowed a final drink at a pub called The Angel at um, St. Giles, And St. Charles Church, of course, is still there. And there is still a pub there called The Angel. So when I discovered that, because I, I thought there won't be an angel anymore. Anyway, so, you know, Google it. Blow me, there still is an angel there. It's still a very nice pub. In normal times, you can go in there and you can have a drink. Hopefully, it won't be your final drink, but you can. I was going to say,
0: did you fall off the wagon? Are <laughs> you still here?
1: I did. I paused, I paused for one or two pilgrimage um, chases. You, you raised a glass to Friends past. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you get to Tyburn, where the only. A reminder of the actual gallows now is a sort of um on a traffic island there's um there's a disc in the in the pavement which says what it is. But just along from there there is a Tyburn convent which has been there I think since about nineteen twenty which is a kind of memorial to all the martyrs, all the people who were killed there, which is run by a group of nuns who came over from France. So um, it it just struck me as a a fascinating way to to see London in a different way. Even if you know London very well, you know, it's got some stuff there that Mm. a lot of people don't. No,
0: it certainly sounds like another fascinating addition to your uh, growing collection of of books. And for those interested in London and, and beyond and for things to do, as you say, in covid out of covid yeah, you know yeah, exactly. you can get some fresh air and do the walk you don't have to go into buildings that are shut down yeah another, another great book pilgrim's pathways i believe it's called indeed yeah. um and, and again available
1: amazon yeah that's right so that's available from the normal sources at the moment i'm doing a lot of things on facebook about it i'm i posting every every day i post a um, little snippet um from it and um i post them into relevant groups so people are interested in london pilgrimage um will find the groups or they'll find um, my own uh, my own account and um there'll be little snippets from the book appearing there perfect
0: so we're at the time of the conversation with my guest when i ask you to talk about or mention one or two places that are particularly have some, I don't know, some personal significance to you in London? Have you had a chance to give it some thought?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple. I mean, I've touched on, I've touched on a couple. Of, Westminster Abbey, I think, is amazing. I mean, when you go in there, A, particularly if you, you know, I, w- I was able to go in, luckily, the day before they closed this last lockdown. It was just before Remembrance Sunday. And you've got the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior alongside, you know, I think it's 3,000 tombs to the great and the good of England, the famous scientists, engineers, authors, kings, queens. I think that's a phenomenal place for any Londoner. And when you go around uh, outside and the, um, the cloister, you realize it was, it was a Benedictine monastery. And it, it still feels like a Benedictine monastery. And the other one is a sort of, it's, it's Fleet Street. So um, when I started out as a journalist, we're sort of going full circle on the conversation here.
0: That's um, good. We have another we, Fleet Street. We
1: there, all, so we all worked in Fleet Street you know and it was an amazing place i mean um every night there would be literally tens of millions of, of newspapers produced from decrepit old buildings during the day there'd be the trucks with the enormous rolls of, of paper like the biggest lavy roll you've ever seen loading them in at night again dozens and dozens of vans taking the papers to the railway stations because they were still distributed by um uh, by rail in those days and you also had you know there were about eight I think, national newspapers there, all of us deadly rivals with each other, all with our own pubs. Some pubs were kind of, um, you know, ground where you could go if you weren't a member of of that newspaper. But um, it was a remarkable, like they used to be all over London, areas where um, a particular industry was focused in a very small area. So, um, so was each
0: pub associated with a particular um, yeah, particular paper?
1: It was. Yeah, if you yeah, walked that's... in there, but you, you walked into the wrong place, you might yeah. get your head kicked. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The Mirror had one, which was I think it was called the White Swan, but they called it the the stab in the back because that was where everyone got ch- shot. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, there was the there was the, the, the Cheshire Cheese, which I think was the, the Daily Telegraph pub. We used to use the one. There was one. I can't. I, can't, I, I just I'm trying to remember its name. But there is the church there. St Bride's Church, and I think it's called the Bride's Tavern, and that was that was the pub that I used to use most there. Yeah,
0: two excellent places. We shall add them to our compendium of uh, guests' special places in London. So thank you very much for that. Two places I don't think we've had on the list before. Some oh, well, that's have Some duplication, so uh, it's it's very nice to have some unique places on the list. So Andy, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us today on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have
1: you. Well, not um, at all, but Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed the chat.
0: No, it's been been really good. So once again, I recommend Andy's book, Secret, Twickenham, Witten, Teddington and the Hamptons. A thoroughly interesting read. It's not a big book, so um, but it covers big topics. So I thoroughly recommend it to everybody. Check it out. Check Andy out. And um, thank you very much, Andy. And uh, keep safe during yeah. these troubled times. You too, Steve. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you. And the feedback and testimonials are awesome but as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows, and sponsorship opportunities only available via via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here. I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Your London Legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Your London Legacy.